0: Welcome back to Season 3 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stefano Bini. In this series of podcasts, we are highlighting the best presentations from the January 2020 San Francisco Digital Orthopedics Conference, otherwise known as DocSF, presented in partnership with UCSF's Department of Orthopedic Surgery, and the November 2019 DocSF Berlin Conference presented in partnership with Frontiers Health. This episode 18 of season three, we invited Nora Tsechi of My Vita Health to Docus F Berlin to present her success with building care pathways in the European Union. As CEO, she shared a terrific case study, and her discussion with a panel of European experts was moderated by none other than Shauna Butler, the host of the See You Now podcast and Managing Director of Exponential Medicine, as well as the Director of Experience at the Digital Peace Conference, in San Francisco. Let's join Nora on the DOCSF stage in Berlin, along with Shauna.
1: The woman of the hour, Nora Zecha. She is with Veda Health, and she's going to share with us
2: her solution. We're gonna listen along, and then we've got some questions for you. Sounds good. All right. Thank you everyone for having me here today. My name is Dr. Nora Zetsche. I'm the co-founder of Veda Health. We're a New York and by now also Munich based digital health company focused on managing patients and empowering patients outside of traditional care settings. Everyone in this room has had a touch point with healthcare in some time in their lives. And for us at Veda Health, that's the exact problem that we go through the healthcare journey one point at a time. Without continuous support and without really having any guidance along the way. At Beta Health, we envision a different experience in healthcare. We have developed a platform for automated disease management along digital responsive care pathways. What that means is, in the most simplistic terms, we guide patients and their families along their care journey, giving them pertinent information along the way at the time that they need the information. At the same time, we're eliciting information from the patients through wearables, through patient-reported outcome measures, and through other assessments so that we can really understand the subjective and objective health outcomes of the patients. We combine the patient-generated data with clinical data that we pull directly from electronic hector health record systems of clinical systems in order to understand how treatments are actually affecting the patients and what are specific subpopulations of disease that may be responding to one treatment better than to another treatment. We also have the optional capability of an alert management system so that we can escalate specific instances and necessary interventions to the respective care teams. We've implemented our solution in a number of different use cases, but I want to present to you today one particular use case. I know this is not orthopedics, but the concepts stay the same. The system where we worked was St. Joseph Mercy Hospital. Um, it's a Trinity Health Hospital in the U.S. and Southeast Michigan. They actually work with a closely affiliated cardiology practice, uh, Kava Clinic Cardiology and Vascular Associates. The challenge that this hospital system was faced with is the high readmission rate for congestive heart failure patients with about one in four patients coming back to the hospital within 30 days of discharge. In the U.S., under value-based care, this is actually associated with a penalty on the reimbursement of any services rendered by the system. So what we offered to the hospital was our disease management platform, meaning that we guide their patients and family members electronically. We monitored the patients through wearable devices, measuring pulse ox, so heart rate and blood oxygen saturation, weight, blood pressure. And we did have the early intervention module so that we could escalate any necessary instances to care team members to intervene whenever necessary on those patients. And of course, we wanted to improve the self-management of the patients so that the patients knew what symptoms to look out for, what to do in case of an emergency, and how to interpret the results that they were getting or the measurements that they were taking on the various devices. So we worked with St. Joseph Mercy with the Kava Clinic and implemented our digital care pathway to monitor late stage congestive heart failure patients for 45 days. And these were all patients the only criteria that they had to fulfill is that they couldn't suffer from dementia so that they would actually be able to use our platform. Although we did have, of course, some patients being monitored or helped by their family members. Um, the average age was about 68. So we had patients all the way up to about 94 that were managed through our system. We created training modules. We also have had a remote virtual training session with the clinical care team members so that they would know how to communicate the system and how to train their patients on the system and particularly on the use of the devices as those weren't kind of built by us, but rather just integration points. And of course, throughout the time, we offered tech support. We were extremely satisfied and extremely excited about the results, so in this monitoring period, we were actually able to reduce the hospital readmissions for these late-stage patients by 75% and increased patient satisfaction by 70%, with anecdotally the patients just feeling a lot more protected and a lot more cared for. They knew exactly they were getting responses to the information that they were inputting into the system so they could regularly see whether they were on track with their health or not, or whether they would need to reach out to a clinician. Extrapolating this results to the patient population at the system that was passing through in that time period, which would have been about 350 patients, that would lead to about a 94% cost decrease when you look at the penalties otherwise incurred through the exceeding readmission rate. So it was a huge success for us, but of course, this also came with quite a number of learnings, especially as this was a first pilot that then also needed to get changed or moved into actual commercial contracts uh, with a number of clients that we have now. One of the biggest learnings for us is really the buy-in at multiple levels of an organization. You really, any project will die very quickly when you don't combine the agreement and the enthusiasm for it from the managerial level, as well as the folks on the ground that actually end up having to use the platform, which of course in the healthcare system typically tend to be the clinical folks that are already well drowned in the work as is. So a second learning that ties into that, for us that was extremely important, is to make sure that our system really alleviates a lot of manual processes creates efficiencies instead of adding additional work and additional effort to those clinicians so we typically integrate very thoroughly into the electronic record system our button within that interface so that clinicians don't even have to leave the playground that they're usually working in and we automate a lot of the responses of the digital care journey so that there's not a consistent and persistent need to respond to every single message. And in that way, you're really able to get the engagement and get the buy-in from the clinician side as well. And lastly, I'd mentioned it earlier already, but for us to really be able to grasp and, and, and manage and engage a large population of patients, A number of different approaches are are helpful, um, one being just reaching out by text or by email versus just a single app interface. But the most important, what we saw in in the numbers as well, is the engagement of family members. So we offered in this a participant or family member portal where these family members could read along all of the information, really were guided on how to best take care of their family member. And this usually improved the engagement metrics. Uh, you saw it on the earlier slide. We captured about three data points per patient per day. And, of course, that is where we want to go to be able to have an ongoing dialogue with patients and uh, between patients and their care teams so that the patients are getting that continuous support that we are really hoping for in the 21st century. That's all from me. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you.
1: Why don't we invite you to come over here in the hot seat? And um, first of all, I just want to say thank you. It's hard being a startup. And I'm curious, how did this problem find you?
2: I started out in medicine. So I was previously working as a radiology resident and was really quite shocked by how little patients actually knew about their care journey and, and how one-sided medical care was being delivered. It was a gold standard that's delivered from the doctor to the patient, but how the patient actually is faring over the long term didn't really matter. And so turning that around and making the entire approach more patient-centric was really important to us. So Jeremy, you
1: haven't had an opportunity to introduce yourself. So I'll give you the first question to Tonora after you let us know who you are.
3: Perfect. I'm Jeremy. I'm part of Now, Kurali, formerly known as Smart Helios. Smart Helios is an independent company spin-off of the Helios Hospitals in Germany. And we are 100% subsidiary of Fresenius. And we developed our own digital therapeutics, starting with hip and knee replacement. (laughs) So, the first digital reimbursement case was established by the German Pension Fund. For sustaining rehabilitation, and this is the first case, so we are exploiting the digital rehabilitation aftercare with a patient-facing and an HEP-facing. Most focus on behavior change, education, and physical activities, but also move on now into cardiology, (laughs) nephrology, oncology, and, of course, for next year, a big focus will also be acute care.
1: Okay, so you get the first question to Nora and VedaCare.
3: How do you address two steps? If you think about cardiology, behavior change is a big, big topic, and medical and medication adherence as 50% of all the patients do not take the medication or take it wrongly. How do you address these two issues?
2: I would actually probably even bundle them in one, as I'd say, behavioral change or just adherence to a a therapy that being medical and maybe being more active or having a healthier diet, all ties into, to me, the idea of how do we educate in a way that we as, as patients can make informed decisions and have the motivation based on information that we're getting to really be adherent. And I think repetition and continuous engagement is key on that. Just giving a handout at the end of a treatment period won't do much change. But when you can actually see and longitudinally track whether what you're doing on your behavioral changes and what you're doing in terms of treatment adherence, how that is impacting directly your health, that gives you a direct monitor to see what's the importance of that adherence. And and that's where where we're really playing and of course leveraging also that trust relationship with the clinicians to help support that entire ecosystem because of course a patient is more likely to be adherent when they feel that they're more closely connected to their care team and, and more responsible yeah. and accountable to a care team member versus when it's just they themselves saying, oh, all right, I'll I'll pick an app and and track myself for a couple of days without having any feedback of how that actually impacts my health. Do you got a question here?
4: Yes, I do. First of all, thank you very much. Uh, it looks like a very sophisticated mm-hmm. platform that you guys have created. I got two questions. One about the platform and one about the implementation. Mm-hmm. What is written back into the EMR? If a patient puts something in the app, what do you as a physician actually see in your own platform and which systems are you connected to already?
2: It's a little bit dependent on the clients that we work with, what they want to have written back into the system. There are systems that are very sophisticated, like Boston Children's Hospital, that have assessments that they do where, for example, for asthma, they have an asthma score that directly impacts how they then optimize and treat the patients. This is not always the case, but for this particular patient or client, we send that score back into the correct field in the electronic record system. At other systems where they're a little bit more liability cautious too, They may say, well, I don't want to have just random numbers floating around in my system and being pushed back into my system. Give me a closed instance. So what we do here is typically tied to the escalation pathway that we log whatever numbers came in through the system, flag anything that would be concerning, flag that to the clinician. The clinician does an intervention, logs the intervention, and that entire event and that closed loop is pushed back into the EHR as a note. And so there's various ways of of doing that. And in the US, Epic and Cerner are the platforms that we're integrated with.
4: And the question about the implementation is we've mentioned already a number of times, only today, that people are stressed and overworked and and have a huge burden of administrative tasks already. Mm -hmm. And now you come with this new platform and somebody says, Hi, I got this great platform, let's implement that. How did you tackle the most an often initial pushback for something new Because that's one of the things that I see often happening.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a valid concern that clinicians would have. For us, it's about looking at what is the workflow currently. So we work with a lot of systems where they currently have to do some form of outreach with um, patients when they're not in front of them. And so what that outreach looks like right now is that a person calls every single patient in kind of a back-to-back fashion throughout the weeks. And we go to them and say, well, we can do this automatically. We can have messages going out to your patients. We can educate them. We can bring information in that you need on your patient that you would otherwise be collecting through the phone or in the visit. And then you can spend your visit actually talking about the treatment versus just asking questions, which you can ask well in advance. And so the actual implementation effort is on IT. So (laughs) there, that is more of a, once everything is signed, they basically have the short end of the stick and have to turn it around and you have to figure out how you can get yourself prioritized accordingly in in the other things that are coming up for IT. But the actual engagement and use of the platform and sales of the platform lies with, as you're saying, the clinicians. And that's where looking at what is the workflow, what value can we actually bring and making sure that the value we bring outweigh any potential addition in, in effort.
1: So one of the things that I've seen is whenever we give a care team and a family a digital access, what we do is we spend a lot of time preparing the clinical team to say, okay, let me show you how this works on the clinical-facing side. What we don't do with the clinicians is show them what the patient and the family-facing side looks like. And yet, when the family's downloading or uh, installing this new app, they're asking the clinician, how do I download this? How do I log in? Where do I navigate the menu? So one of those pain points that I've seen is that we're not training the clinical team what the patient-facing side looks like, so that when we do want to use this tool, we have people on both sides of that communication really proficient in how to use it. So how did you fix that particular problem?
2: That's a a very good point, and for us it's really important to have clinical champions, so we see ourselves as somewhat of consultants as well, where we Mm -hmm. help the clinical teams figure out what are the roles to really staff the platform or to staff the service. And part of that is also having somebody who knows the platform well that can essentially teach the teacher type model where you can have that individual be very well versed in the platform and can troubleshoot for anybody else on the clinical team, but also for the patients. Of course, we do have support resources both on the patient side and the clinician side uh, that they can access through through the platform itself, but we also do teach the clinicians during the training on how to guide the patients through that initial onboarding, mm-hmm. which is really, I would say, the only or the or the one part where the most questions may arise. But we circumvent that entire problem by essentially moving away from a native application, going text to web on everything, so you don't even have any of that app download, no storage on your phone, etc. And we continuously look for ways on how to reduce friction points, but definitely training clinicians on on the patient-facing side is really important. So having a super
1: user? Yeah. Because
2: where we find it, it's not the first and the second time
1: where they run into it. Mm -hmm. It's the third time. Mm -hmm. And that's when they're farthest away from the clinical environment where it was introduced, where we went through something. Now they're out on their own and an instant came up where we hadn't prepared them for mm-hmm. um, entering some new data. And, and then that's when you get the phone call and people are scrambling around and that's when it's like, this is just too hard. So that super user that's worked well for you. Yes. Okay. Yep. So Leander, we didn't get a chance to meet you. Thanks for joining us.
5: <laughs> Thank you very much. And sorry for the delay one more time.
1: <laughs> I'm sure it was really important. So what's your important question here for why this, the implementation work?
5: Well. I mean, I think in general, thank you very much for sharing these impressive stats as well. And really like the stats on the ROI and on the effectiveness are very, very impressive. When you talk, it sounds like you have a very specialized solution and it's actually a great time for anybody to hop on board because they maybe even get a full kind of pathway consulting team right on top of the solution (laughs) when you actually implement it. How much do you have to invest in specialization? How much of that can you scale quickly across multiple providers if they want to onboard you really
3: fast?
2: (laughs) It's definitely something we've had to do quite a bit of learning around over the years that we've been in business because there's a very fine line between being very customizable and then just overcomplicating things. And for us, we certainly try to move towards a standard because we also think that that's ultimately where medicine should be headed. There should be a quality standard and, and with it sort of standards of, of care and interaction and treatment as well. But certainly you have to meet providers and you have to meet the systems that you're working with where they're at. And so somebody may say, well, we have three different pathways for three different doctors and they're not willing to move into one pathway. And we say, well, we can, we can handle it on our platform. We have a care pathway configuration and builder tool. So from that perspective, it's not a problem for us. It's not what we like to do because we don't think it's it makes a lot of sense, but we'll do it even just to show them that Dr. X actually ends up having better outcomes than Dr. Y and it may be time to start standardizing their pathways. And then you have other systems that know exactly what they want their care pathway to look like and what information they would like to elicit. And here we're not going to impose something on them that they don't want to be using. But again, that kind of care pathway tool for us is where the most flexibility happens, and is something where we allowed or built ourselves a lot of flexibility, and the other aspects of of how we interact, and, and us learning how a patient responds best. That is something where we feel we're becoming more and more the experts, and something where there isn't actually a, a standard that that anybody can rely on. And so that's something where we're happy to go in as the experts and say, actually, we're happy to try your way, maybe, but let's try it in this way and, and see where we end up and see how the, how satisfied the patients are.
5: Wonderful! It's actually yeah. an extra value creation on top of what you do in the first place, right? To actually give advice yeah. in the pathways then. Mm-hmm.
1: So, what's the clinical value and what's the business value that your solutions providing?
2: So, from a clinical value, it is specific to the disease that we're working in. So, for cardiology, it would be hospital readmission reductions and a better self-management, which translates in actual metrics improving. So, a reduction in water retention and and those types of clinical outcomes we've uh, done studies where we were able to increase the asthma control in pediatric patients and then on the business side of things this of course is very <laughs> gets very tricky because you're confined to the regulatory environments that you're working with and so in the US with value based care it's a little bit more of a clear cut case of for Medicaid, reduce uh, emergency department visits for pediatrics and for adult cases, reduce hospital readmissions. In the European landscape, there are systems and groups that are think- very forward-thinking that think into this value-based care model of reduced hospital or reduced healthcare utilization. And that's something we certainly continue pushing towards because we feel that that's the future but ultimately there's also just an efficiency to be gained and less kind of time spent on uh, fte's that have to be managing the patient interactions manually. Do you have another you look like you have a question there.
3: On top of that because especially when I see it in Europe of course it's easy to go to countries like Spain with their population health management but really kind of focusing as in Germany you don't get paid for monitoring a patient Mm -hmm. but still every physician has this incentive to treat the patient so really detect patient at risk to address them to say okay now i have to call this patient but also say okay i've got a lot of patients running smoothly through the system being adherent and being optimal treated to see them only in Germany like four times a year.
4: Mm-hmm. I
3: think this is a big USP. Still, every cardiologist or even a GP now treating a cardiologist
2: patient wants to do. It still has to be in the framework of how do I make money out of it. <laughs> I guess over the years you get a little cynical. I had a an insurance provider... Say to me, uh, and talking about the entire healthcare s- ecosystem in Germany, but he said that ultimately everyone, every player in the healthcare ecosystem in Germany makes money off of sick patients, not off of healthy patients, which means that prevention isn't really in our mindset. It's more about how can you give the most care to a patient or give the most reimbursable care to a patient. I don't love that. <laughs> but it's the system we're we're working in. And we're here certainly still looking at ways now with the new laws around it, there's a new angle where this type of monitoring and efficiency can actually be reimbursable. And that is extremely exciting and an important and I think an important mindset shift. Because what I've seen from conversations is that Unless you can prove to that doctor that you'll make sure that the patient only arrives at the clinic four times a year, but then definitely does arrive four times a year, that's an argument. But if it's about improving the patient care, it's not an argument in Germany right now.
4: Maybe building on that, I think it was 4,000 years ago that the physician of the emperor gotten paid for each and every day that the, the emperor wasn't sick. <laughs> And I do think that we are going to shift in next generation towards that model. Is your business model and your technology sustainable enough to handle also that primary and secondary prevention aspect of it in terms of the build for it?
2: I would probably have to to ask, <laughs> ask a follow-up question. Meaning by secondary and, and kind of tertiary prevention, you mean the actual prevention of care and scaling into that versus just treating yeah, ill patients
4: yeah i think the secondary prevention is what you're yeah. doing now you try to prevent readmissions for yeah, instance yeah. the primary prevention is keeping people out of the mm-hmm. system so what if at one morning you w- would wake up and somebody in germany over in the netherlands or in finland or whatever mm-hmm. would say so and now we're starting to pay for prevention as well yeah interesting. Interesting. it's just saying pain Oh, yeah. for, for part of it is, absolutely. Yeah.
2: No, and, and that's certainly where we're building towards. We feel from an evolution. Especially now, as we're looking at value based care in the US, it started out with everybody saying, okay, how can we identify the high risk patients? Now we're just going to throw all the resources we have at the high risk patients. But we're already moving towards that idea of how can we prevent these patients from becoming high risk? And that, to me, leads into the logical conclusion of how can we offer more personalized medicine? And not just medicine from a treatment perspective, but from a prevention perspective. Understanding what are the variables that actually cause a patient to. Get ill, and how do we prevent and address those variables early on? And for me, the way that we've always that we've set up the the system and the platform, it's a learning process, and we're sort of we want to be a part of that road of, of that transformation because within the platform, you're able to read essentially and see what are the and and more and more we want our system to learn what are the variables that are impacting individual patients health so that we can make inferences on what where we can do early detection and then also where can we essentially adjust treatments so early on that we don't even have that patient going into that late stage heart failure or or any of those later case illnesses
1: So one of the other challenges that we run into is digital inclusion and making sure that on the side of patients, do they have a cell phone? Do they have a plan? Do they have access to the internet? What did you find? I mean, this was a population in Michigan. Mm -hmm. So I don't know the, the distribution of internet availability, Mm -hmm. but it's uneven Uh, everywhere we go. So what as far as solving it, that is the major core infrastructure that needs to be in
2: place. How did you guys address that? I think it's a challenge that will run its course, thankfully, and that will be done soon enough. Right now, of course, it is a challenge. We address it through a number of different ways. One one aspect that we actually never had thought of, and I, I briefly touched on it earlier, is that app downloads proved to be difficult because patients had limited storage on their phone or limited data to download an application, especially in this Medicare, Medicaid population, low-income populations. There were nuances and issues that we had never thought of that would be an issue. And here... Again, a, multi, a number of different models is is what we went for. One, getting rid of the application, going from text to web, so that um, you can access it from any device that that you'd like to access it from. It, of course, still you need to have some form of digital component, <laughs> and for us, it's that then moved into the realm of who else can we tie in that can take care of this patient. So giving the access to family members, giving the access to maybe at-home caregivers that a patient may have, and essentially building an entire network around a patient, an entire layer around that patient to be able to interact and and get information. For pediatric use cases, we actually send surveys for ADHS children, so um, attention deficit disorder. We send surveys to their teachers. And in a lot of the pediatric Mm -hmm. cases, because Kids spend a ton of time in school and these teachers want to be informed about what do I do when, when something is going on with the kid. And at the same time, they can give us a lot of context on what actually happened with the kid so that when the parents may be not there, we have more and more folks that we can actually draw on to support that one patient that really needs it.
1: Well, and that leads to my other question. Oftentimes when you are working with a population of children who are in school, and that's what we want them to do, you've got to figure out how to engage the school nurse. Mm -hmm. And you. so there's a set of each one of those populations where we're developing a tool that doesn't fit their abilities. If they've had a stroke, they may not be able to use voice recognition or use their voice. Also, if they've had a stroke, they may have an issue with digital manipulation. So how in your design and to to address the variety of capabilities and needs were you able to design a solution that really fit the set of abilities mm-hmm. that your
2: users would have? I think overall in the healthcare space, we sort of have to walk before we can run. There's a ton of things that we can do with technology and we see it at, at conferences every year. There's a new buzzword that sort of gets thrown around. Everyone gets very excited, chatbot and voice recognition was the buzzword, I think one or two years ago. Problem is that neither Alexa or Google Home are HIPAA compliant. So now you can talk all you want about voice recognition and also how many patients actually have an Alexa or a Google Home sitting at home. Same with wearables. How many patients actually have wearables? Or actually wear them. Or actually wear them. And so we keep talking about all of these fancy technologies, but really haven't even solved how Dominic was saying earlier doctors are still faxing and so before we talk about kind of holograms and all kinds of fun things that we can do with technology we should probably solve very basic problems we're not going to catch everyone at the first go mm-hmm. but the issue is it's a very german thing to do to over engineer before you actually get going <laughs> and so we try to get going and then learn along the way and things that actually make sense where we say okay this would help us capture x percentage more of patients or this would help us really move the needle on outcomes, that's something that we will do right now. And other things just get pushed out in the roadmap because they don't really add a value at this particular moment.
1: Yeah. I was going to say, are there any questions in the audience?
0: Yeah. One of the things that we need to keep pointing out is that at some point, the funding of this has to be paid for by an improvement in outcomes that's clinically measurable. And I think the data you showed is very compelling. Just those U.S. space, which is how we mostly sell technology to healthcare systems. Here's a problem you have: with decreased your readmission rate, with decreased your overall cost, increased your capacity. How you work in the European environment? I think you mentioned once you focus on that a bit more. How well does the idea of saving an overall cost, increasing access, or improving quality resonate? Which are the three pillars of the healthcare reform? The United States, how's it resonate here?
2: We're actually launching a project in the Netherlands, kind of a similar model, in January of next year. So just full steam in in setting everything up right now, and in talks in the in Ireland as well on a similar project, and it's all focused around that same concept. Because ultimately, health systems are recognizing, and and this is an interesting interesting move or or movement that we're seeing where health systems and pioneers physician practice networks etc are saying and and looking at the health system saying this is not sustainable and we would like to prove that we can reduce the cost improve the quality and as such reduce the overall cost for an insurance provider and <laughs> interestingly enough the insurance providers are sort of sitting back and and saying well let's let's have it and these are the types of projects that we're setting up in Europe right now because while the insurance providers certainly have an open ear to it, I'm not seeing a ton of it being pushed directly by them, which I think is also just due to the fact that you obviously need a clinical setting to be act- to put something into into action. and so we're working closely in, in sort of consortias where we're trying to essentially calculate that for the the insurance companies or demonstrate it and then also calculate the economic health economic outcomes of implementing standardized care pathways, supporting that through digital means, etc. And I think in the coming months and years, and we've already seen a lot more happening of that in Europe, I think there just needs to be a general push and a general sort of waking up that that's something that is being asked for and called for and prepared for. And the regulatory environment then just needs to essentially enable it as well.
1: I think, well, well actually, you had a, we'll leave you with the last question and then we get to go to a break.
5: Lucky me. I actually had the exact same question oh. about how you work <laughs> with insurers. So that's redundant. There.
1: Perfect. So then was there another one out here? The lights and... Okay, right here.
5: Thank you for the nice discussion. I'm Bernd Krim from, from Luxembourg. And I think we have in, in the first two uh, previous talks, we've seen how digital data management and protection works or a clinical pathway can be digitalized. And with with your app, there's also data analytics at work and advice or treatment or intervention is given. So, so then we are entering, I think, another level of digitalization. I'm wondering when the regulatory bodies like FDA and EMA may get or need to become involved or we should involve them.
2: So we're taking it step by step. That's certainly the direction that we want to head towards right now. What we're doing is essentially presenting the information that we're gathering and correlating that information for a clinician to make the therapeutic decision. As we're essentially having more more patients run through the platform and more feedback from the clinician to, to validate what we're seeing, that's when we would be moving towards a more... I guess a uh, decision support engine and of course then the regulatory aspects come into play here as well but for me it's sort of a step by step journey that you have to pass through and starting with increasing efficiency showing Data correlations and then really moving into clinical decision support.
5: So, so now the doctor makes a decision. There's no decision f- from the app, so it's not like a treatment. Yes. No. Yeah.
2: Right now, there's no automated yeah. decision okay. yeah, support. Yeah, yeah. It's more rule engines responding to the patients. All right, then with that, Nora, I want to say thank you so
1: much thank to you. you. What a great solution! Great set of answers to <laughs> our many questions, and thank you to the panel here for some great questions and really pushing on, making sure we understand how this works. So,
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of season three of the digital orthopedics podcast, and that you heard something that will trigger your curiosity and advance your digital journey. Many of the examples we bring you are outside of orthopedics, But the technologies and solutions we present are all eminently translatable to musculoskeletal care. Please consider giving us a review on your podcast platform so other people can find us. More importantly, tell a friend about our amazing community. We look forward to sharing the next episode with you. I am your host, Stefan Urbini, founder and chair of both the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco and this, the Digital Orthopedics Podcast.